Guys, we're going to continue. We've been studying through. I know we've got a lot of new faces. I know some guys are getting back into their school year routines. And so maybe you're joining us Sunday morning and you haven't been here with us for a little while. But we've been spending some time studying through something called the aroma of discipleship. We've looked at discipleship from a few angles. This, this wonderful word that helps clarify who you and I are. And, and listen, all of us are trying to make our way through life, trying to figure out what to do next. What's important about me? What matters that I can invest my life in? And that word disciple is huge. Don't let it be a small word in your vocabulary. But discipleship, you know, it faces a little bit of a challenge. Is discipleship real in your life? I grew up, and probably like a lot of you guys, grew up in America. I grew up in a religious setting. My parents brought me to church regularly. So it's not as I was on a mission field somewhere and you were introducing me to the name of Jesus Christ. I knew the story. I knew what he had done. I knew a lot of the teachings. But I didn't know him. I was not his disciple. So I guess we need to conclude that you can, you can go to church... And not be a disciple of Jesus. You can be in this building this morning and not be a disciple of Jesus. So aroma has to do with the fact that when, when things have certain living qualities in them, they give off a smell. Right? I don't know if you my wife loves to cook and so she's always getting the right ingredients, you know, and you chefs out there, you know what you're doing. When you go to the store, you smell the stuff you're buying. You know, you you're smelling the the produce, you're smelling the, the seafood especially, because you, you want to know what condition it's in by the aroma that it gives off. Well, can I say there's something like that in the Christian life? We give off an aroma. And when that aroma has certain characteristics, it's the aroma of Christ that we're smelling among us. And, and God is after that. I hope that when you walked in this place this morning, and you spent any time with other believers in any setting, there's, there's a certain atmosphere to that exchange. Right, this morning, I want to talk about the aroma of encouragement and mutual care. This is something we're aiming at together, but it is a characteristic of our own life. And so it, it's about how to be an encouragement to others. That should characterize the body of Christ. Let me start again with Mr. Ray Ortland's thought in his book, The Gospel. He says, the ministry of the gospel in our churches involves more than doctrinal argumentation. The work of the gospel is subtle, like the work of a fragrance. It's not just brute facts landing hard on someone's mind, but an aroma wafting into a heart. And this light contact proves to be life or death. Such is the astonishing power of the gospel of God. How many of us need that astonishing power to come waft into our hearts even this morning in a way that brings encouragement into my soul? I think if you've been having a heartbeat in the last couple of years, you've had your dose of discouragement. You know, I've been doing this for a little while, been a pastor almost 30 years now, and I could probably say there are more discouragement stories and chapters in the last few years for people than I can remember so clumped together. There's just a lot about doing life right now that can be discouraging. Well, God wants to bring encouragement to our settings that are discouraging. So I, I, I gave my introduction comments to Captain Obvious today. Captain Obvious says, the need for encouragement exists because discouragement exists, right? This is why you drive all this way to be here, right? <laughs> Deep insights. But it's interesting, if you look at the word encourage and the word discourage next to each other, and you trace out their etymology, there's a lot just to be learned from just the word encourage, right? That piece of that word in, it means to put in or on, to cause to be. So to encourage others is to put something in them. You are putting in the second half of that word, courage. 
is a word that comes from about 700 years ago, a, a word describing the heart, the spirit, the temperament, the inner workings. It's a quality of mind, which I love this phrase. It, it enables one to meet danger and trouble without fear. That's what encouragement is. It is putting in others something that's going to enable them to meet danger and trouble without fear. That's what we're after. Understand, how can we learn to be an encouragement? Discourage, what's the other end of that? It means to deprive of or cause to lose courage. There are things that come into our lives that when they bump into us, they they dislodge our courage and they they make it hard for us to engage life with a sense of tenacity, right? So three insights I want to bring to our conversation about encouragement. One, I want us to look and see we need help with courage because there are forces arrayed against us. Two, Courage comes from the sovereign grace of God in his covenant love and from others. And then three, why are there discouraging enemies in our lands? Well, they're there to teach us to depend on God's grace. All right, let's pray together. Father, Lord, there are many of us gathered this morning and undoubtedly we are navigating events, seasons, and settings where we are responding to something that happened we weren't expecting, where we are doing life and we are bumping into discouragement along the way. And Lord, this is a place where you want the aroma of encouragement to find us, to be breathed deeply into our lungs. So Lord, I pray that your word helps us to be encouraged this morning. Lord, I help Help us as a body of believers together to learn to encourage one another. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to take us into the the battlefields of life where you and I are going to be experiencing something that drains us of courage. And I want to take us into the Old Testament battlefield, and then I want to take us into the New Testament battlefield and see if we can find courage in these settings. So 2 Samuel chapter 10 This is under King David's reign, so you're about a thousand years or so before Jesus comes. And there's a situation here where a battle is going to take place. And I'm not going to give a great deal of detail about all that's going on at this time frame. Just the way in which these leaders responded to this moment. 2 Samuel 10 verse 8. The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rahab, and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. Now when Joab, now Joab's a good guy, right? Joab's the commander of uh, David's armies. He's, he's quite a heroic figure in leading in battle. I'm not sure he ever loses, quite honestly. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, He chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Insight number one, we need help with courage because there are forces arrayed against us. You're probably not here today worrying about the Ammonites and the Syrians. But you got something with a name on it in your life that is arrayed against you. Something that you feel like is threatening. Something that you feel like could harm you. Something that could make things worse. 
Those forces exist. And if we're Christians, we've read our Bible, we understand they are both physical forces and they are spiritual forces. And so you and I are here this morning with, you know, there are physical things touching our bodies. Many folks are dealing with different ailments and you feel the threat of that. There, there may be financial issues going on that we feel the threat of that. It's provisional. There's cultural things happening. <clears throat> there's conflicts happening all around us. We feel those things. And then there's spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places that we understand that are scheming. You imagine that there's spiritual beings who might have a conversation about you and your particular moments and might come up with a plan and design something to come against you in particular ways. So there are forces in this world that are arrayed against us, right? In verse 8, 2 Samuel, the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array in the entrance of the gate and the Syrians in the open country. So here is the people of God. They're living in their land that God has called them to and dwelling around them are people who are hostile to them. I wrote something in your outlines if you have that. This is a kingdom principle you can hold on to. Dwelling in the promises of God included enemies and battles. Dwelling in the promises of God included enemies and battles. Remember, God had this great plan. He brings the people to himself. He invites them to Mount Sinai. He tells them, here's the plan. You guys are on your way. Here's the instructions on how to relate to me and walk with me. But I'm taking you into this promised land. So when God describes the promised land, you're thinking, hey, it's a land of milk and honey. This is going to be awesome. You know, bring the lawn chairs. Let's pack up. Let's go, right? But when they get there, they discover a bunch of people with funny names. Jebusites and Hittites and Canaanites. And the rest of the history of God's people, leading right up to this battle that we're reading about today, with Ammonites and Syrians and eventually Babylonians, all those people are in the land that God promised them to go into. So I don't know about you, I don't know what, you know, what's our interpretive skills in this moment? Because I I do have a great concern for modern humanity, especially westernized thinking that there's been so much favor, so much grace, so much benefit of people like us who have lived in a place like America. So much goes well for us that we, we don't know how to respond to things not going well. There are people all over the world who face conditions that are so much more dire and difficult and trying than we ever will experience in our lives. And so that, that kind of pollutes our theology sometimes. We develop the idea that, that if God is really with me and God is really for me, then I'm not going to bump into enemies who threaten me. I'm, I'm not going to have a moment where my courage gets dislodged because something has come to the doorstep of my life that I'm afraid of, or I feel this could go bad, and I have begin to face anxiety and concerns about whether this is going to ha- end happy or not. You know, if that's my story, I start thinking, where is God? Is God against me? Well, this is where this environment can become a rather toxic environment as well, by the way. If your theology is bad things only happen to bad people, and you come into fellowship and you sit in a small group and you listen to somebody unpack the woes of their lives and how the wheels are coming off, what's your interpretation of that? You must not be living right. Well, here these guys are moving into the promises of God, right? God gives them a promised land and they show up in this promised land and they're going to be surprised to find out that God intentionally allows battles in our life. Scary ones. He puts, you know, you got a few examples here of battles being fought where uh, no big deal. We just send a few people for this one because we're not outnumbered. But most of the time, Israel was the least of the nations. So most of the time, they were like, you know, this underdog team facing these giants around them. And so there was always this sense of we're in over our heads. We're in over our heads. Everywhere they went, they very seldom, there was a couple of moments and it doesn't end happy, where they had this sense of we got this. 
don't hardly send anybody. We got this. And you guys know that that ends in failure. But in Numbers chapter 13, God is about to lead them into the promised land. They finally come to the doorstep of God's rich promises, all that he intended to give to them. And they send some spies out into the land. Those of you guys who have read your Old Testament, you, you know the story. Numbers 13, verse 25. At the end of 40 days, right, spies have gone out and they've come back to tell the people what it's like in the promised land. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to the, all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness at Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them, to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, always watch out for the howevers in God's plan. <laughs> However, the people who dwell in the lands are strong, and their cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Now, what's happening in this moment? Well, courage is being dislodged from these people right now. They're, they're gathering the information. Here's the postcard from what's in your future. You're going to go into this land and you're going to encounter these things. You're going to encounter opposition that is strong in cities that are fortified. And the people there are legendary. The descendants of Anak, I mean, come on, they're giants. And they're waiting for us. And you can feel courage leaving the room. Verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land to which we've gone to spy it out, it's a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people there are great in height. And there, was, there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them as well. All right, here's, here's the setting. Here's the reality of the setting that you and I had the playbook over. God's plan is unfolding. He's met with them. He's assured them. He's made covenant with them. And he has led them to the doorstep of the promised land. They are at the door of God's promises, having a crisis of courage. Don't, don't forget that that could be our story. You could be right at the doorstep of what God has promised, and suddenly courage evaporates from inside of you. And taking the next step starts to feel like that's just impossible. So then a raid against these guys back in 2 Samuel. We fast forward to David's day. They're fighting the next battle. The chapter there is now we have to face Syrians on one end who have been hired by the Ammonites to come against us. So we're, we're outnumbered and they're surrounding us, right? Verse 8 said, The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate and the Syrians. Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear. See, see, when you start to assess physical moments, when you start to assess life, this, this is what the reports often sound like. Let's not be surprised by the reports. The guys who went in and spied out the land, they didn't come back lying. They just came back without faith. There really were walled cities there. The people really were bigger than them. The stuff that they saw was real. When Joab stares out and he, and he assesses the situation, 
Those guys that we were fighting have hired a whole other country. And now there's two countries coming against us and they've surrounded us. So we're outnumbered and we're surrounded. Listen, that could be the facts. Don't buy into some, hey, you know, the key to the Bible is somehow being positive. Joab, just be positive, Joab. No, Joab's okay to say, can I just point out something that's obvious right now? We are outnumbered and we're surrounded. That's a fact. And you're not going to make that go away by saying, no, no, Joab, don't say that. Don't, Don't confess that. His problem isn't with acknowledging what's there. The problem wasn't with the spies acknowledging what was there. The problem was not seeing God in the moment in which they found themselves. And when you don't see God and you just see life, courage evaporates. Here's a reality that none of us get to escape. Whatever it is that God has called you to, it's bigger than you. Remember, we started this whole discipleship thing. Discipleship has an aim. Its aim is to glorify God and to image him into the creation. That's God's aim. So if you and I are going to be image bearers, it's very possible that God is going to put us in places where his image is going to flow through our lives into that setting. And that setting is going to be bigger than us, harder than us, scary. So if you just assess wherever it is that God's put you and you don't see God in that moment, courage is going to evaporate on you. And listen, I'm not saying that to backhand anybody here. There is nobody in this room who hasn't had courage evaporate on them. It's the whole reason why we need an environment where we can be encouraged, right? All right, second insight. Courage comes from the sovereign grace of God in his covenant love. That's a fancy phrase. What does that that mean? It means that God determines to have a plan for us that is formed in his own heart for his own glory and purpose. Which means God does many, 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 many things in our lives in spite of our stupidity and our falling short, our weakness and our sin. Many, many, many things. The biggest thing is the fact that you are here today with an ounce of interest in knowing him further. Because all of us came into this world linked to Adam, blinded to the value and worth and beauty of God, totally absorbed in our own project, wanting the whole world to sign on for whatever it is that we became convinced of was really important. And God insisted, insisted that we become aware of him. And in his sovereign grace, God got our attention. God won our hearts. God gave us the grace to be motivated toward him. So there are moments in which courage has evaporated. Quite honestly, a lot of us want to run for our lives. And our posture is to turn our back on the will of God and run as fast as we can because we're scared. And you know what we have going for us bigger than anything else? The sovereign grace of God. That God looks at that and he doesn't say, you know what? This is the last time you're turning your back on me. This is the last time you're going to confront life and be such a chicken key. I'm done with you. You know the reason why God is not done with me? Is because of the sovereign grace of God. And because of the covenant that he made with his son on my behalf at the cross. You do remember, right? Jesus took all of our sins to the cross with him. And he died for all of them. And God entered into a covenant, and this is is a powerful thing to remember in the worst of your moments, that God's covenant with you is an interesting covenant, because truly what it is, is this. God the Father makes a covenant with God the Son at the cross. It becomes ours because God chose us in him before the foundations of the world. God took our lives, hid us in Christ, And then determined he would make a deal with Jesus to be to Jesus for eternity. What now we get to have him be to us. Why? Because he put us in his son. So when God shows up in our lives and he arranges to do things in our lives, it is because of his sovereign grace and the covenant he has made with his son on our behalf. And God brings courage to us on that basis. 
But there's also <clears throat> others involved in God bringing courage. Now look first, here's the sovereign grace piece. If you go all the way back to the doorstep of the promised land, Numbers 14, Joshua and Caleb trying to convince the people to move into the land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. See, Joshua and Caleb aren't saying, listen, that's not true. The people were tiny. We can run all over these guys. Oh, the cities, yeah, they're made of bamboo. We're going to tear the walls down in a matter of moments. This is not going to be hard, guys. That's not what they sound like, is it? They didn't, Jacob, uh, Joseph, whoever this guy is, uh, Joshua and Caleb, they do not, <laughs> they do not deny that there's some real problems in front of us. But what they see is that if God delights in us, which God has already revealed to them that he is delighting in them. That's why they're in covenant with him. He's revealed that. He says, I've written you on the palm of my hands and no one can erase that. If God delights in us, he will bring us into the land. He'll do this somehow. So there's a, a reason for courage to return into our hearts here that has to do with the sovereign intention of God. And then the same thing is here in 2 Samuel. Be of good courage, Joab said, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Why are we taking the field? Why are we going to face these enemies that we're surrounded by and we're outnumbered by? Why are we doing that? Because we trust the Lord is going to be for us and with us. But here's where we as a community need to hear something. Listen to the strategy here. Courage is going to come to the people of God, not just by the sovereign workings of God. It's going to come from other people. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9. When Joab saw the battle was set against him, both in front and rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and raided them against Syria. The rest he put in charge of Abshay, his brother. He raided them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will help you. Listen, without question, part of the reason why these guys took courage and took the field of battle because they understood God sovereignly was with them. But do you notice that they don't ignore that human interaction doesn't matter because we got God's sovereignty going for us. They actually had a plan that if when we go to battle, those forces that are arrayed against you begin to take you down, I will come help you. And if when I go to battle, the forces arrayed against me, they begin to take me down, you're going to come help me. Take courage, Abshay. Be courageous for the sake of God's people. So what's at work when you and I are needing courage to do life? An awareness of the sovereign purposes of God on our behalf and other people. Other people are a means through which encouragement comes to us. And I only want to point something out here. If you, don't, you haven't read enough of the New Testament, you don't recognize that name Joab. Uh, Joab's quite a player in the Old Testament. Joab is, Joab's kind of like the Michael Jordan of the league. So you're not just talking about another guy with another sword and another shield and go out and fight a battle. It's like, um, Joab doesn't know how to lose. Joab wins over and over and over again. So you would have gone to battle with this guy. Now, Joab, in this story, he's doing a lot of the right things. That's not always his case, by the way. Joab does some ruthless things. Joab could get out of control. He could do the wrong thing sometimes. But in this moment, he's doing all the right things and saying all the right things. But you're familiar with him. You're his brother. You're part of the mighty men of David. So you've seen this guy in action. It would be very easy to believe that guy never has an uncourageous moment ever. Uh, right here, he needs to remember some things. And he needs to call for help. Can you just point something out to us? If I were to ask you, who, who are the Joabs 
in your life that look to you like they never need encouragement. They're probably going to be the ones who, they tend to look the same all the time. They don't tend to be knocked over by stuff. They tend to be strong. They tend to be leader types. They tend to hold it together. In season, out of season, storms, difficulties. They just, they're just the same person over and over and over again. You can start thinking they don't have a... They don't have a courage problem. You know what happens when you stop thinking the people around you don't have a courage problem? You stop encouraging them. Because you think they got this. I'm going to share personal items and some of the people in the room don't know I'm about to do that to them. I'm just filtering whether I should. Um, This church has been blessed with some Joabs. There's a few Joabs among us that, let me just tell you, you're hard to figure out how to encourage because you you look like you don't need it. Uh, One of the hardest things that I encountered in the last year and a half or so was figuring out how to encourage Bill Treatby. This guy never looked like he had a dent in him. He never slowed up. He never looked like he had a need. He just fought one battle after another, after another, after another. He stepped into your battles, into your mess. And then he stepped into somebody else's. He just looked like the guy was always on. And then he hit this patch in the last year or two of his life. We just kind of knew. I didn't have this phrase in mind, but courage is being dislodged. And there were some moments where it was, I mean, he and I sat in his living room and just cried together. um, Because courage was being dislodged in a season of his life. Um, Some of the guys around us have been Joabs. We've gotten used to going to battle with them. They've been with us. They've fought for us. They've stepped into our battles. Peter's in a different season in his life. He's never missed as much church as he's missed in the last several weeks. Uh, Peter's one of those guys who never looks like he has a need. Never looks like he could possibly be lacking courage. Things change in our lives, right? And there's people around us who, who go from, oh, Quite honestly, none of us are in a place where we're we're never needing courage. This life is discouraging in many, many ways. You know, just in the last several days, I've had conversations with some folks who have been a part of our church forever. They're they're like Joabs. You know, talking with Tammy May the other day. Uh, If you know Tammy for as long as I've known Tammy, uh, she goes to battle. Over and over and over and over again. And she never, you're never around her feeling like she has a need. Anna Chatelaine, I don't know if Miss Anna's here today or not. Just talking with her in the last, in the last season of her life. Anna just always has been a person like a Joe, I'm going to show up and we're going to fight and we're going to fight to the end and we're going to be successful and God's going to be glorified. And, and you can find your way into a season, it's an aging season. So can I, I just awaken in us? There are people around us that have looked like they don't need to be encouraged. They need to be encouraged. No matter how hard it is to figure it out, because they look like they've never needed it, they do need it. I'll give you this last insight. Why? Why are there discouraging enemies in our lands? Why doesn't God lead us into a promised land that's just got empty parking lots and lots of vendors waiting to serve up lemonade to us? Judges chapter 2, verse 23. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Remember, Joshua is fighting his way, had to fight his way into the promises of God. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to tap.
Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generation of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. God, you said this was the promised land. You mentioned milk and honey, all kinds of awesome things. What's the deal with the people all over the place resisting us? I left them there for you to fight. You did what? I'm from America. I thought you said this was a promised land. Everything's supposed to go smoothly. This isn't supposed to be hard. You know, for the sake of your faith, it is supposed to be hard. Because if your faith didn't have to cling to me, it wouldn't. If your faith did not have to reach for me, seek me, long for me, seek to be rescued by me, if that was not what was going on in your world, you would walk from me as fast as possible. Your faith needs a good fight. So I left enemies in the land. Listen, I know right now, this is what's happening in the audience right now. A bunch of people are going, yeah, that does sound like the Bible. But a bunch of us who have gotten discipled too much by the noise of the prosperity movement in our country, you're sort of trying to figure out what to do with what I just said. Because in the prosperity world, if you just have faith and live clean, you can make all the problems go away. Can I tell you, I hate to be the bubble popper, but that ain't never going to happen in this world. Because there's something that the Bible actually teaches this. There's something about this thing that we are saved by the grace of God through faith. So it is a salvation by grace. And even the faith is a gift from God. So there's this interaction of God's sovereign grace and faith in us. And then the Bible turns around and says that faith, it needs to be in place today, tomorrow, a year from now, 10 years from now. Right up to the end when you draw your last breath. If there's no faith, you're not saved. And God says, part of what I'm doing in your life is I'm making sure that your faith stays connected to me. Why did I leave the enemies in the land? Because I know you need me. When you had to do life and you were in over your head. When you're outnumbered and you're surrounded, I knew you'd look to me then. Come on, all of us know that it's the moments when I got this. It's the moments when I'm moving through life and everything's going good, man. Blessing here, blessing there. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about us studying through the prophets a little bit coming up. And the prophet season is an interesting moment. It's the prosperity that was brought to the nation of Israel after King Solomon. They didn't do well with it. They forgot God as quickly as they could. So why does God leave these enemies that array against us and, and, and they threaten to drain us of courage? Because our faith needs a good fight. Listen, that testing word there, be careful you don't use it like you just got out of grammar school. This is, testing in the Bible is almost never pass-fail. You know, like check the box, did you pass or did you fail? That word testing is more a refining word. It is more a separating word. It is more God putting us in life and saying, hey, this event, this battle right here, it's going to separate something from your faith. And I'm going to get rid of that so that your faith is pure and it continues. And then you can have another battle and that's going to separate something else. So that word testing is more a separating word than it is a, am I going to pass or fail this thing? Is God trying to figure out whether I'm going to get a pass or fail grade at the end? Hey, listen, Jesus took that test for you. That's a different kind of test. He took that test. He passed. You already got an A. I mean, you can't get a better score. Perfection has already been yours. He answered all the questions completely right. And God worked it out so that he could sit in and take the test for you. This is a different kind of testing. Do not, do not confuse the two. 
Because then you'll wonder whether God's for you or not. You know, I must be failing the test. God suddenly is not. He is for you because of his sovereign grace and the covenant he made with your son. That's why he's for you. Not because you're doing really well on the test today. This is a different kind of test. These battles aren't just in the weird Old Testament settings. They're in the New Testament as well. And there's some courage to be found there. So we're going to move through those same, same three questions real quickly. But this time, rather than Joab, we're going to visit with the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. And we were so utterly beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. We just touch on those same three points about encouragement. Insight number one, we need help with courage because there are forces arrayed against us. Paul stepped into those forces. If you read in two places in 2 Corinthians, he will unpack them in a list and describe, I went through this, I went through that. I went through this, I went through that. There are particular things that he encountered when he was in Asia. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Oh no, Paul, be positive. No, he, he did me great harm. Paul was, was in Asia. The Corinthians are coming unglued. They're attacking him. They're tearing down his, his name and his ministry. And he's having to disrupt his time in uh, Asia and go over to Macedonia, then down into Achaia in order to address these issues. He was greatly discouraged by what was going on. He was beyond himself. That's the words he used. He was beyond himself. We were utterly burdened beyond our strength. You, you want to know when courage starts to evaporate? When life gets beyond you. I'm, I'm, I'm courageous about a lot of things, right? There are, you know, if I need to change the, the toilet paper ring in the bathroom, I total confidence. I mean, I can go in there and take it out. If one of my kids brings their car to me and there's this bizarre thing wrong with it, and I'm going to have to take half the engine apart to do it, courage goes out the window, right? I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in over my head. And I have to tell them that. Uh, I'd love to help you, but I can't fix that. See, our courage is intact as long as things are within our own strength, our own understanding. I've done this before. I've done it a hundred times before. I know how to do this. I've got the resources for this. I've got the funds for this. In those moments, courage doesn't evaporate. It's, it's when you get beyond those things that courage gets dislodged from our lives. And that's exactly the experience that Paul had. Even Paul. Even Joab, even Paul find places where they are tempted to despair in a moment. Does Paul stay there? No, he does not. And we don't need to stay there either. But if we find ourselves there, you're, you're not alone. You're not out of bounds. Second insight, courage comes from the sovereign grace of God in his covenant love and from others. Verse 10, Paul says, he, he did this. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul, why did, why did God deliver you? Can you understand how easily it would be to undermine Paul's confidence if he thought God delivered him, not because of his sovereign grace, but because Paul was on a winning streak. Paul was really cool, really righteous, doing all the right stuff. So therefore, God delivered me. If that's what you're thinking, you're in serious trouble. 
Because at some point, God peels back the veil and you start seeing you got more spots than you think you had. Can I just say, when God goes from the outside, I remember this happened to me in my 20s and it hasn't stopped happening to me. When God goes from the outside to the inside, you will have a totally different opinion of yourself. Right? I thought, wow, I'm doing really well. Right? I'm, I'm this teenager who gets saved and I'm, I'm into drugs and I'm stealing from everybody and lying to anybody who speaks the English language. Uh, I'm experimenting with things. I'm trying to live on the edge and be cool. And then God steps in and instantly, you know, I, I, I don't want to be drunk anymore. I don't want to do drugs anymore. I don't want to speak the same way I used to speak. I'm, I'm thinking, right, I'm not looking at Frank right now. Frank was a high school coach and I got saved in high school. And I can remember it took a little while for my language to clean up. And so I remember him actually making a comment about that. At some, I think it was a football element, uh, just correcting the fact that, you know, that, that probably needs to go. I mean, I, actually, I remember just because of some good, sound biblical leadership, I was convinced I needed to go to the teachers that I had been in their classrooms and, and apologize to them for the kind of student, the kind of person I had been. I was just a smart out like you'd, like you'd never met. So God had been cleaning up all this outside stuff, and I'm thinking, hey, I'm doing pretty good. This is change. This is growth. This is awesome. And then somewhere in my early 20s, God decided to take the light and say, hey, can we go inside? Can we go into the motives of your heart? Can I talk to you about why you do what you do? Can we introduce the subject of pride and humility? Oh, my gosh. If I had anything of a high opinion of myself, it went out the window. If you let God on the inside and you let him show you his holiness and his character in relation to who you are and, by the way, who you're not. Because I did get to a point in life where, hey, I stopped doing that, I stopped doing that, I stopped doing that. And then God could say, well, Keith, how about we talk about what you haven't started to do? How about we talk about the things of life pouring out of you that don't seem to come out of you as easily? Can we... Can we talk about that? And God could do that to me right now and show me my own weakness and my own sin. So if ever for a moment, I think God's going to show up and he's going to deliver me because, see, I've read a few books and changed a few things in my life. And then one day God shows up and says, hey, can I show you something behind this closet over here you've never noticed before? Well, now what's God going to do? Well, he ain't going to deliver me now because, I mean, he knows what's in my closet. Listen, your, your theology is upside down. The God who delivered us and he will deliver us again, he does that because of his sovereign grace and because of the covenant he made with his son on your behalf. That's why he's doing these things. And then Paul goes on and says, you also, Corinthians, you also, you also, not just God's sovereign grace, you also must help us by prayer. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Paul actually stands and says, you're about to do something that's going to have an effect upon me to bring courage into my life. Your prayers are going to encourage me as I move forward. You must help us in this. Listen, there was a, there's a moment... You don't have to turn there with me, but you can if you'd like. It's a moment where Paul goes on and he interacts with the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Paul, Paul had issues and problems with the Corinthians. They just weren't on board with him. A lot of them didn't like him. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2, listen to where Paul finds courage in this passage. He tells them, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies could, well, we had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting within fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us 
by the coming of Titus, God actually used a person to inject courage into Paul. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. This is a moment where Paul was struggling with the Corinthian relationship with him and the hostilities that exist. And it was fighting within and fighting without him. There was conflict all around and he was in turmoil inside of himself over this. So much that he had moved to try and hasten his way towards Corinth. Where did courage come from? It came from Titus. When Titus said, hey, Paul, there's a bunch of people in Corinth who are responding well and they have you in their hearts and they're all right, man. Courage comes into his soul in that moment. Listen, uh, conflict is discouraging. It dislodges courage. I don't know if I've ever known anybody who walks through a conflict without seeing them have their courage dislodged by it. Paul found courage partially because the people around him responded a particular way. Now, he just got finished saying God delivered us, and he will deliver us again, by the way. But that wasn't all that was in this moment for Paul, was it? There were actually people who moved toward this Joab of the New Testament in a way that he needed that. He was in conflict within and without until a report came back because people moved toward him and Titus brought news of that. And that's kind of the last thing. Paul mentions this about us moving toward one another. I'll finish with this verse. Keith, you can go ahead and come back up here. Philippians 2. Verse 1, I would have loved to have unpacked this verse. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, and so obviously Paul wants there to be. He's saying it like, hey, there's supposed to be encouragement in Christ. Any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, right? These are, these are us words. This is, this is aroma words, aren't they? This is, this is talking about what this place should smell like, what our exchanges, what affection, sympathy, encouragement, comfort. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Listen to this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let each of you look for something. And we are living in an age where everything, every philosophy of how to do life, everything that's going to get rewarded, everything that you are are being stood up in a commercial is telling you, look as far as the end of your own shoes as to how you can make your world all that it needs to be for you. And the Bible comes along and says, no, do not do that. Do not merely look out for your own interests. Look, look to others, look to their condition because God has installed a means of injecting courage into our lives through one another. Not just through the God who's gonna take care of that situation, although that should be where we start and our greatest sense of hope should be derived from that. But there are practical, meaningful means when somebody else injects courage into your moment. We need to receive that from each other, but we need to give it to each other as well. So listen, this is a, this is a series of teaching about us being, just being disciples. I mean, you just got to get around God a bit so he gets around you a bit so that the smell that's coming off me changes. But when that happens... A byproduct 
of the presence of God and the work of God in the heart of a disciple, a byproduct, which means if it's a byproduct, something else has to happen before it. A byproduct of being a disciple of Jesus is encouragement, is putting courage in others. Which means right now, I'm going to do something kind of weird. And, I, and, and boy, if you're like what Aaron was describing earlier, this is your first time here or your third or fourth time here. And you were wondering when it gets weird. It gets weird now. Um, but, you know, church is a lot of times, church is a moment for us to sit and listen. And that's true. It's biblical. We should do that. Teaching and learning. And we create other gatherings and other places where different types of ministry and contacting happen. Our small groups are so important for what we're talking about right here. Because you can engage one another. You can hear each other's story. You can hear a person. You can hear the leak of courage coming out of their lives because they're describing their situation. There's giants in my life and they're named this and they're named this. And there's these new guys that showed up and I'm surrounded and I'm outnumbered and they're Ammonites and they're Syrians. And I got this report back from the doctor and my finances are this. And my child just called me and told me this, right? They're, they're, they're telling you what's in the land and the battles that they're fighting. But if you listen carefully, it's like, you can hear courage leaving the room. And if you and I get close enough to each other, we can notice that with one another. And then we're called to encourage that person. And maybe we don't know what to say. And quite honestly, there's a lot of situations where you don't know what to say and it's best not to say much. But you can pray. You can pray and see what God gives you faith for towards that person. You can pray with them and maybe God awakens a word that just means something. You prayed exactly. I've had some guys come and pray for me and it's like they were, they were living with me. Their vocabulary was unusual, but it was my vocabulary over the last week. And I knew God sent them to me to pray exactly those words over my life. And so here we are this morning. Look around. You're still looking at me. Look around. Is there any sensors going off of anybody needing an injection of courage? You know some of these folks. Some, maybe God will just show you something. But you may know there's some folks here that they could use some encouragement. The intentional act of injecting courage into their situation by however the Holy Spirit leads you to do that. Sometimes some of the most meaningful, just a text sometimes from somebody has been, oh, that was timely. Sometimes it's been somebody got a word and they texted it and it was like, oh my gosh, that was more than timely. That was like you just read the mail of my life. And you pulled God in the moment with me, with your words. So we're going to have a prayer free for all. And I'm just going to ask you to, to just respond to whatever. Listen, can, can, we, can we learn to be a church that we're just obnoxious in encouragement? Is that a good thing? Wouldn't that be cool? The people, it's like, I'd love for people to come and say, hey, I visited your church on Sunday. Can, can I just say the church was obnoxious? In encouragement. You know, I hope they add the encouragement part. Uh, but if we're looking and we're noticing, how can I bring encouragement to that person? Listen, some of you, uh, you may have a different thing to do in this, and maybe the person's not here. Maybe you are needing to go encourage a Paul in your life. And, and you are needing to address the conflict you have with that person. And they're, they're feeling something that's making them at war inside and out, inside and out. And you would inject courage into that person's life by coming to them and bringing a sense of, hey, God is at work. I love you. We're going to work through this, whatever it is in your life. So... All right, this is where does it gets. This is where you get up and you go pray for somebody. You don't have to be professional prayer. You just need to be a Christian who just loves people and wants to bring encouragement. So everybody start moving. 
give you permission. I'm going to pray for us, but I want you to go ahead and just start moving toward people. I'm going to let Keith lead us to close us. How are we doing on time? Father, I pray that as we're just moving toward one another, this would be a moment for you to inject courage into the battlefields of our lives. So Lord, give us grace this morning to give to one another so that encouragement can be found by every person here who needs some encouragement. In Jesus' name. You want to stand up with us if you're not praying with somebody, you can join Keith as he leads us.